Smartcast. You are listening to a Mint production brought to you by HD Smartcast. Welcome to the Investor Hour podcast. I'm your host Rahul Goel. The goal of this podcast is to learn from the best investment minds of our times. We want to learn their backstory, essentially what makes them them. We want to learn how they make their decisions in their personal lives, and of course. we want to learn about their core principles of investing essentially a lot of learning that could help you make better decisions in life and investing mihir wora is a growth at a reasonable price gap stock picker he's always thinking where he can find growth and how he can get to ride it in a way that ends in potentially large profits fortunately for his investors he does this quite often i talked to mihir about his journey his gap approach and as always about portfolio construction and asset allocation listen in mehir welcome to the investor hour i was de- delighted to have you here on the show so uh let's kick this off we have a lot of ground to cover and uh, uh there are there are a whole bunch of things that you know are on my list to talk about but most critical of all i would like to start with uh really the start in the sense uh you know where did you grow up uh where did you study and also things like you know uh, how was the in- environment in your home in terms of uh were your parents investors you know did you have those ipo forms coming by mail in your house uh, a little bit of background will help over to you sure thank you rahul for having me it's a pleasure to be here and uh, you know uh, it's a kind of a it's a, it's a up uh, you can say afternoon on a holiday so it's more relaxed and nice to chat with you to that extent so so my background is really uh, you know very uh, so to say uh, typical the middle class background i grew up in a city town city called baroda now it was a town now it's become a city uh, well known for its uh, you know colleges and education and culture uh, good mix of you know the local population of course which is the gujaratis but it also has the history of uh, the marathi king gaikwads uh, so there's a nice you know palace and there's a bit of a cultural marathi cultural element also in the in the city's heritage so to say so it was a good i, I would say cosmopolitan environment to grow up in more so in my case because i grew up in a township uh, which is the township of the gujarat state fertilizers company uh, and there that was one of the very initial set of you know temples of modern india so to say which nehru envisaged in the public private sector in the public sector and uh, so the fertilizer factory and the you know the uh, ammonia plants etc were the first uh, among the first in the country and to that extent we had engineers from all over india we had you know the staff uh, the employees were from all over india so you know it was a good very healthy cosmopolitan atmosphere we had our own school uh, again like the typical you know the township that you see in the in the government run uh, uh, but so it was a very well rounded experience we got facilities for example which were unheard of at that point in time you know a, a beautiful club and a swimming pool which belonged to the the township uh, so nice uh, very you know wholesome uh, i would say Uh, raising and then of course we uh, from the township uh, as we grew up we moved to the city in our own home which my dad bought and that was a bit of a different experience uh, but again a typical small town kind of environment so that's that's where i come from uh, parents again as i said my uh, mother was a, a homemaker and the father used to work with uh, the state government under- undertaking which is gsfc and uh, 
so to that extent the money was you know not like uh, in abundance but it was enough to live a comfortable life uh, but uh, i had a couple of uncles who were quite into investing and all so sometimes they they used to kind of you know encourage me to kind of uh, look at stuff one of my uncles was very well read so he used to keep sending me uh, copies of magazines that he had already read you know the business magazines etc so my exposure actually came from there uh so and, and that was one uncle who I also i used to respect a lot uh again very well educated very well read so he used to keep sending me books to read he used to keep sending me magazines that he subscribed to like business india business today the last street those kind of magazines and i used to read the older copies month old copies of 15 day old copies of of what used to pass on to me so that but that that whetted my curiosity my appetite for learning and i'm grateful to my dad and my uncle for that well uh was gsfc listed those days uh it was i think yes it was uh, listed in those days yes i think uh if my memory serves me well there's something about the gujarat psus they were always a cut above the rest and there were quite a few of them right there was gujarat state fertilizer gsfc there was a narmada valley thing absolutely uh, gnfc gnfc yeah, gnfc i i the name slips me but i i think there were more such companies which tended to do well i guess for whatever reason yes but uh uh so pretty interesting so you got introduced to i guess the world of finance and business via reading all those brilliant magazines business india and business today i think came early 90s very early 90s that's right the first edition we normally used to be business india uh, was the one india yeah, today street yeah Wall street journal uh, uh, business uh, india today of course for general knowledge so to say and then he used to have those international magazines also time newsweek Yeah, yeah. So I used to read those back copies for of those. Do, do you recollect having tried to hand at something those days or making a mental note of a stock which you liked? No. So what I used to do is uh, my uncle used to make me fill forms of the IPOs for himself because that time they used to do many applications. You know, there were multiple applications across different folios and all. So I used to help him out sometimes to fill up the applications, and he used to also kind of nudge me towards it because then I used to go to the bank. to deposit the ipo application so i got some exposure not on my money but at least i got in touch with the markets uh, you know in my college days because of that that's good exposure yeah you you get to uh, get to see how the process works in itself is a good learning absolutely uh, you remember any form you filled i'm just trying to uh, get some names out this would be the 80s i would assume late 80s so in fact for some weird reason uh, baroda used to be a big market for many of these uh, unscrupulous ipos at that time Mm-hmm. so uh, i i remember a few names uh, which which don't uh, uh, not very easily uh, recollect uh, but uh, one of the big ipos i remember in the early 90s or late 80s was tata timken ah mm-hmm. uh, and tata timken was a blockbuster ipo uh, in the late 80s or very early 90s i must it was 89 or 90 or somewhere around that but that got oversubscribed i remember at that time like 400 times and it was a big thing uh, so that's one thing that i distinctly remember uh then there were a couple of eyewear companies that i remember being listed from gujarat but those were the you know the dabba companies which basically floated for the sake indian indian financial history is littered yes. with dabba ipos <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> and for some reason you know amdabad rajkot uh, baroda and jaipur used to be the hot hubs of of these uh, ipos I remember that. Yes, it's probably true a little less today, but still a little bit true of those places, right? Absolutely. Yeah, uh, and uh, so at some point in time, you went. I I did check up your LinkedIn page. You went to I'm Lucknow to study. Yes. yes. And then what I found pretty uh, interesting is typically when I'm talking to people on my podcast, they usually become analysts and they go through a 
process and become fund managers at least from your linkedin uh, profile it seemed that when you came back from iim you straight joined as a fund manager in one of the amcs did i did, did i read that right uh, yeah so it was like uh, i just uh, i i did my mba from iim lucknow after my engineering okay uh, and coincidentally after my engineering i worked with gsfc again for a year uh and of course while i was working i have also parallelly uh you know started preparing for the cat and uh, stuff like that and then got into i am so i could not work for more than a year because i got into uh, i am right now uh so uh, the way it worked is that uh, sbi mutual fund did not exist independently at that point in time it was a part of sbi capital markets which was the market merchant banking arm so sbi capital markets used to come to campus to recruit uh so i got a placement in sbi capital markets and then they said you are going to be placed in sbi mutual fund uh so that's how i joined the uh, sbi mutual fund uh and this was like in 1994 uh, where where there were only public sector mutual funds if you remember the yep. first private sector mutual funds actually were licensed out in 1994 itself so they they did Bond not actually is 1994 if i am not mistaken exactly. that's when it launched yeah exactly and then 9394 is when they were all these birla mutual fund and you know franklin mutual fund uh, morgan stanley exactly. all the first uh, you know the reliance mutual fund they were in the process of getting set up they hadn't really set up at that point in time yeah so pretty much at that point in time uti of course was the big daddy uh, but not technically a mutual fund because it was under the uti act and then it converted to a amc later on uh, so in the first bit of mutual funds if i remember correctly it was the public sector bank sponsored mutual funds sbi mutual fund can bank mutual fund indian bank mutual fund those were the first breed of uh, you know uh, mutual funds to uh, come in and basically they were staffed with the people from the bank and people like us who were freshers so it was you know learn as you go so everybody used to kind of dabble in everything so to say uh, so i started out uh, as an analyst uh, but very quickly when we decided to launch a fund in 1995 i i joined one of the senior fund managers as his assistant and we launched the first open ended mutual fund in the country uh, for sbi mutual fund which which at that point time at bond, that point in time we didn't know what to call it so we just call it magnum open fund so <laughs> it was the first open ended fund so to say uh, uh, so that's how you know it was really learning very interesting so you joined uh, sbi capital markets in 1994 that's about a year and a half after the harsha mehta scam had happened or harsha mehta meltdown post harsha mehta meltdown had happened absolutely everything had got, got wiped out but the markets now were once again kind of rallying to this whole fii money coming in yes and all this buzz around these private sector funds morgan stanley growth fund you know people queuing up for kilometers to get a form etc etc so uh how was it like when you entered because i'm assuming when you when you were studying you were probably reading all about the collapse but by the time you joined sbi the bull market was like on you know yeah, absolutely the sensex at that time i remember in may 1994 uh, had touched uh, 4500 4545 was the level uh, which was actually a new high at that point in time and of course after that it went down but you're right uh, the harshad mehta scam was pretty much past us uh, uh, and as you correctly mentioned it was the first wave of fii money coming into the country in fact in sbi mutual fund we had set up uh, uh, just a couple of years before uh, before 1994 we had set up a fund called india magnum fund in collaboration with morgan stanley uh, mm -hmm. so that was amongst the first breed of offshore money coming into uh, india jointly managed by sbi and morgan stanley and then of course morgan stanley started their own business in india 
but th- those were the you know exciting times of the first wave of opening up first wave of post manmohan singh opening up uh, money coming into the country uh, so those were kind of uh, you know pioneering times uh, to a great extent in fact i think whoever has joined the market around 1990 to 1994 95 has actually you know even if you did nothing you just got uh, carried in uh, uh, and your your career progression was very nice uh, uh, without much effort because there was no talent in this field available at that point in time so if you look at all the leading fund managers uh, offshore or within india a lot of them are in the 1990s uh, that's right that's right that's right and the, there was a lot of effort yeah, yeah. you you're, yeah. you're being humble there was a lot of effort required <laughs> yeah. to get but you you just needed to survive because you also must uh, you know just to step back into history uh, in 1994 as i said the sensex was 4500 right and it it had gone up uh, in the last two, two since 92 onwards when the market at bottom then it went up consistently on the back of optimism that manmohan singh is doing the right things india is globalizing so foreigners are coming in etc but that actually was a uh, intermediate peak so 1994 when i joined the mutual fund industry the sensex was at 4500 and 8 years later in 2002 if you remember the sensex actually bottomed at 2800 so <laughs> so it was 8 years of actually no returns uh, in the first part of my career so that's also actually been a bit of a learning and that also probably shaped some of my investment decisions even at this point in time yeah so if i'm uh, uh, if i recollect well so 94 you had the fii peak yes i think 95 96 you had the ipo peak yes uh, then 99 2000 you of course had the tmt peak So uh, before that, uh, you had the uh, uptake again t- in 1998, but then we had the Asian crisis. Ah, uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, uh, the uh, August 98 was when Russia melted down, and that's when it all ended. Melted down yeah. happened. So the yeah. global markets also corrected, or especially a lot of emerging markets. And because yeah. emerging markets collapsed, uh, big fund. You know, if you remember LTCM. Yeah, long-term capital management. Yeah. So that collapsed, and because LTCM collapsed, Greenspan cut rates aggressively. and that aggressive rate cut actually fueled the tmt boom yeah <laughs> sounds, sounds kind of familiar rate cuts and booms in market exactly. yeah, yeah. <laughs> history history repeats itself yes yeah it's amazing so yeah so uh, so that was quite a tumultuous period right you had multiple every few years you had a boom bust and that's why you know uh, for many years after 90 retail investor never really came back yes. because they they just lost trust in the market so uh in this whole process now talking about you specifically when did you make your first investment in this whole period and if you can tell us more about what that investment was so uh, my first investment i think was in one of the you know <laughs> ipos <laughs> was it an ipo <laughs> no it, it was in uh, let's just put let's just say it didn't go well <laughs> 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 you never really learn till you put in your own money right uh, yeah that's true yeah so that's the other common thing amongst you mentioned one common thing it, is that a lot of fund managers started that time the other common right. thing is a lot of them lost a lot of money in the in stocks those days yeah exactly very few actually it was a petrochemicals company you know uh, huh? newly listed uh-huh. uh, of course at that point in time chemical prices were going up so it was right. all the rage and all but obviously you didn't sell you got some shares allotted but you didn't sell uh, it all went down to zero uh, so you paid the fee to learn yes <laughs> what mistake not to make and a small amount because you're starting off uh 
So, uh, talking about a little bit more about investment. So, you, you, of course, you were on a path to become to being a fund manager and managing money, etc. And in parallel, you were doing, you know, you're growing up as an investor yourself. So, I'm I'm trying to find uh, the key learnings and the experiences you had in this period, uh, the the ninety five IPO period, and of course the ninety nine two thousand TMT period. If you can share. Uh, a few of your experiences those days on what you did with money or how the funds performed and how you dealt with that. Sure. Uh, so the good thing about being uh, a fund manager or an analyst at that point in time was that you didn't need to be a great analyst uh, or a great fund manager to be to be to be you know uh, to do well. Uh, even if you were curious enough to f- just read a lot and find some information, that was power. So today, you know, you can Google virtually anything, Bloomberg, Google, Reuters. You have so much information that you actually need to process a lot of information. At that time, you just had to find information. That itself was a value addition. Uh, so, you know, if you, if you remember in the early 90s, even if uh, you just got the price uh, timeline of, say, PVC prices for the last 10 years, it was a it was a valuable asset for you. So analysts actually were actually data collectors, and if an analyst could you know gen, uh, f- go to the textile market or through his contacts, get a timeline of PVC prices or or uh, cotton yarn prices or or you know VSF uh, 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 prices, he was considered to be you know oh yeah this analyst is very well connected. He has a lot of information. <laughs> so uh, just information gathering was itself a a skill, so to say. And to that extent, networking was important. Personal contact w- was important. Uh, but now, of course, we have too much information and processing information is more important than collecting information. So I think that that one big shift uh, uh, that has happened. Uh, second is I also gradually, you know, uh, in the 90s also realized that uh, as you, you know, kept on reading about value investing and growth investing, I also started realizing that I am not, you know, a person who can just buy something just because it's cheap. So that's where probably my philosophy of buying growth uh, uh, came about. And I was never, you know, very impressed with stocks just because the dividend yield is 6% or something like that. Uh, Because I I, I didn't get excited. You know, uh, that's my style. Uh, Then, of course, uh, came the TMT boom and growth did very well. So my funds did very well. And and, and then, of course, because of certain compulsions in some of the funds, uh, I actually had to sell in 2000, which turned out to be a blessing in disguise, uh, because then that turned out to the peak. So in a way, luck also plays uh, uh, some portion in investing. Uh, but then in the 2000 meltdown, you also realize that buying growth is not enough. You have to be conscious about the valuations. Uh, so even in uh, 2008, for example, when some of the big real estate IPOs were coming up, I mean, I I, I called all the investment bankers and the analysts ask for the spreadsheets on what basis they are valuing these real estate IPOs because that was the first time you had real estate companies coming into the country. But because of my experience of uh, 99-2001, I really dug into those spreadsheets uh, for all the real estate companies. And, uh, you know, I, I, I realized that for the real estate companies, for example, analysts are projecting that they will sell in one year the number of square footage that the company has not delivered or has delivered in the past 20 years. So if a company has delivered 5,000 apartments since 1992, 2007, people are assuming that he's going to sell 3,000 apartments or 5,000 apartments every year for the next 10 years or 20 years. You know, those were the kind of uh, assumptions that people were building in. And it didn't make sense to me. I had, I broke my head. I, 
you know, had uh, heated arguments with the analysts, etc. Didn't put money in the IPOs and of course, uh, felt left out also when the IPOs listed at 60-80% premium. But then of yeah, course, yeah. they all went down by 90%. And in hindsight, you know, I guess everybody was right. Even the bankers who said IPO is going to do well, they were right. And I was also right because they went down by 90%. Market has a, has a place for everyone. Yeah, I think, you know, that's the interesting thing, right? Uh, when you are going by your conviction, uh, and more often than not, you're going to be against the mainstream. And it, uh, you know, it really takes a lot to stand by opinion. Like you said, you had heated arguments to try and, I guess you were trying to double check whether you got it right, right? Uh, in, in terms of your sensing. Absolutely. And uh, you gave up buy, you know, for example, if you did not buy HFCL, Z and there's all those stocks in the earlier rallies in the 99-2000 rally I think everyone felt like a fool because those stocks rallied so much but if you look point to point three four years well you know you're very smart but when the stocks are moving up you're going to feel <laughs> pretty yeah, pretty low I guess as you want stand by say, convictions yeah as they say the markets can stay irrational longer than you can stay solvent, solvent. yeah <laughs> that, that, if you remember that that's so important right you'll do well as an investor so you mentioned something very interesting which i picked up on you said that in uh, you had loaded up on growth but because of the policies you had to exit in 2000 so i'm assuming you're talking about loading up on telecom media technology stocks among others because yes. that was the go go years you everyone was betting on growth Yes, yes. Uh, and tell us what happened really and uh, what kind of a policies, because it could teach, I guess, the viewers on how to have filters in place, which sort of can uh, prevent emotion getting the better of you as an investor. Uh, so actually, it was, you know, uh, the, the the way that some of the products were structured, we had these uh, income plans uh, where we had to generate certain, you know, assured kind of returns. Uh, at that time, there were mutual funds were allowed to give indicative returns, so to say. Uh, so we had some of those plans, and uh, uh, as luck would have it, some of the plans had gone into deficit. Uh, but then this sudden boom in '99 happened, and the deficit turned into a comfortable surplus. So then I uh, spoke with the management, and you know, uh, said that let's kind of capitalize on this because uh, we are lucky that we are not running a deficit anymore. So we kind of then started trimming booking profits aggressively in some of those funds uh, so that we had a ample buffer not only for this year but even for the future and that turned out to be a good call uh, so i think the discipline of being satisfied with what you have i guess uh, and making sure that you know not only this year but the next few years buffers were met uh, that that helped uh, and because i was selling in some of the funds i also took the call to sell in some of the other funds which did not re really require to uh, to be done yeah so i guess what uh, uh, the uh, possibly one of the learnings from this is that uh, if you have income goals, uh, you should try and meet them and not uh, get too greedy just chasing the capital, right? If you have to book your profits to pay, you know, uh, let's say let's say if you have a loan, right? And your goal is to never be a debtor and you're sitting on a big capital gain and the stock markets are going up, up, up. I guess it helps to take some money out and, and stick to your principles and not let the stock price drive your you know, how you're going to run your life. So That's I guess uh, that kind of played out well for you, I guess. Yeah. And, and then on the other hand, you know, going by a similar example, we have uh, many examples of, you know, employees with stock options, which are not yet vested, but then there is funding available against those stock options and people have gone ahead and took, taken loans, against, loans. Mm -hmm. loans against unvested and vested stock options and 
and the markets have gone the other way and and people yeah. have come under stress yeah yeah in fact uh, uh, i'm told that in uh, uh, march 2020 in the pandemic uh, when the pandemic uh, flash crash or if you call it that happened there are a lot of people who had taken such loans yes they took a big hit because automatically all the calls were triggered or they had to liquidate absolutely and that caused a big loss uh, to people but leverage you know i uh, to my mind uh, for at least individuals uh, there is there i don't think there is much of a case to be levered up <laughs> when you are when you are investing no absolutely uh, not not in not in equities for sure not in equities yes completely agree okay uh, so uh, we spoken a bit about 99 to 1000 the great financial crisis uh, 2008 uh, let's talk a little bit about the pandemic uh, and uh, and when the pandemic is hitting you you know you got 25 years of experience under your belt uh, you've been there done that you've got all these cumulative learnings how were you placed on the eve of the pandemic and how did that pan out for you uh, so you know just to step back again uh, before the pandemic uh, hit uh we were already beginning to see some signs signs of slowdown for india so there was a bit of a slowdown which was uh, creeping up uh, of course we had the demon uh, in uh, 2016 and then the uptick in uh, since then but in 19 towards the end of 19 it did look like things were slowing down a bit and then uh, towards mid february early march we started receiving news of this uh, you know uh, new strain of virus etc and by the first second week of march it really looked serious uh, so we actually cut a lot of beta in the portfolio generated a bit of cash in the portfolio by the middle of march uh, and suddenly the market tanked you know uh, by around remember, te- around beginning of 10th of march 2020 markets started going down quite sharply uh, so we were quite well positioned for the downfall i must say uh, we did well uh, that's a great call yeah if you were able to cut down beta because uh, february yes the news started filtering in march i think there was some volatility in the initial days yes so there uh, was there was enough time to sell it was not a panic situation so we could easily sell whatever we wanted to sell and then of course uh, things worked in march and i think 28 march was when the bottom uh, bottom happened uh, but but that's only half the story the good part is over uh, then we were still sitting on cash in april and the market started rebounding as central banks uh, you know uh, Uh, came out with all, all guns blazing with the governments coming out all guns blazing on the fiscal side and central banks on the monetary side so it took us almost a month and a half to get back to you know because the movement was so sharp that while theoretically we could have done it in a few days but it was so volatile that we did not take the call on monday we kind of took a little while to get back to you know uh, more invested levels so to say so while we did very well in the first part in the, the v shape recovery of the market we lost a bit but i guess it all even sound in the end yeah but uh, uh, you know uh, uh, with the benefit of hindsight it's easy to say that uh, you missed it but uh, the fact is that there was so much uncertainty at that point in time and if you were running a low risk strategy i think it is uh, it is perfectly excusable to have been holding cash for longer than other people because no one knew how it's going to pan out Yeah, if you remember uh, if i hope i don't misquote that but i remember charlie munger did a interview in march sometime and uh, so buffett had already said that he will not be speaking before the agm which will be in may munger had spoken a little bit and munger said 
uh, our mission is to come out on the other side of the pandemic with more cash or some something like that broadly what he had said right. basically they were being conservative and they were selling stock because right. no one knew how it's going to pan out so uh, a, a lot of people may have gone long at that point in time uh, but if they went long assuming they're taking more risk it's fine but if they went long and they could did not have the appetite for risk that was punting you know they could have lost everything if the vaccine yeah. got delayed for another 6 months it could but have for institutions uh, the is, decision is a bit easier because we are expected to be long only uh, so it's only a question of whether you have 2% cash or 10% cash so that's a little bit just a small oh. margin that you can play with exactly yeah. uh, but it's never easy uh, and probably we underestimated the uh, size of the response uh, now that we have the data of course we realize that the balance sheet expansion that the fed did from 2009 or 2008 to 2011 which was almost you know 3 to 4 years uh, they they hiked the balance sheet by almost 3 to 4 trillion dollars this time around they did it in like 9 months or 10 months you know <laughs> so the, the 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 kind of ammunition that they used this time around was far more than that uh, which you realize now they didn't want to leave anything to chance exactly and when, and when they were done with it then comes the fiscal fiscal exactly and it still it was coming to la, uh, early last year right with exactly. the biden uh, spends and now of course we have the inflation to pay for it now we have to pay for it so uh, i don't know what strategy would have worked out well but in hindsight i guess if you were long you were long yeah. so uh, did you uh, in march 2020 was there any particular source or uh, what you read that gave you the conviction that is time to go down on beta you know uh, uh, lever down on your beta no it's just that this was an additional reason to lower beta because as i said there was a bit the of economy was already slowing you were saying yeah. this it just was a trigger to act more fast act faster basically yeah, yeah. so uh, so net net uh, uh, so in this whole uh, series of these ups and downs in the market and all uh, how was your style of stock picking evolved you, you you mentioned you were a growth investor uh, then you learned that you can't buy growth at any price which, which you mentioned uh, how tell us what's the cumulative of all this learning what, what is the uh, the stock picking selection process that you have evolved now yeah so i think uh, it's all evolved into uh, growth at a reasonable price which is garb but with a with a strong filter of quality and by by quality i mean the tangibles as well as intangibles so it's not only roe roc free cash flows uh, but the but the promoter background the management quality the depth the transparency the corporate governance structures board structures etc uh, how they have treated uh, minorities in the past all that kind of stuff it comes into the quality part of it uh, so i think that has become the you know first filter so if you're not comfortable with the promoter and or the management uh, we will not look at the stock even if it looks uh, even if it looks cheap on our uh, gap filters then of course uh, as i said i continue to remain a growth investor i think in a market like india uh, when the nominal gdp growth rate itself is uh, you know uh, double digits uh, there's no point in not being a growth investor Yeah. Uh, just for the benefit of the viewers uh, and listeners uh, when uh, mehir says uh, nominal is basically real plus inflation so if the economy is growing at 6% uh, that's really the real growth rate and if inflation is 6 so 6% of real growth plus 6% of price growth 
So 12% becomes the nominal growth. Just just for those who, who, who don't get that. Yeah. Absolutely. And uh, we know that India has been historically growing at about 7% uh, mm-hmm. with inflation of 5 to 6%. Uh, so 12 to 13% has been the nominal growth rate over the long term for India. And I don't think it's any coincidence that if you look at the long term uh, EPS growth for the Nifty or the Sensex, that also happens to be around 13, 14%. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, in a growth economy like India, it pays to be a growth investor as long as you have the quality filters in place and as long as you keep broadly valuations in mind, you know, yeah. and again, people make this, uh, you know, at least uh, I've seen so many people confusing value and valuations, you know, uh, so value by value, it typically means a stock being cheap on say price to book or dividend yield is very high or PE is low. So that typically forms the value part of the market, uh, which has its own fans uh, and which has its own uh, you know, philosophy. Uh, and then comes the valuation part where we, we don't look at one parameter, uh, but we look at multiple parameters to find the intrinsic value of the business, not the uh, you know, mathematical value of the business. So we're not looking at scuttlebutt uh, investing or half price to book kind of thing. As long as we think the company is going to deliver growth, uh, which means higher EPS uh, going forward over the next many years. And of course, with EPS, hopefully cash flows also will uh, accelerate. Uh, cash flow generation will accelerate in the next few years. How do you value that growth? Yeah. So, so an obvious question that would come to you is that uh, uh, when, when you're saying growth at reasonable price, right? A lot of the high growth companies now, which actually are getting shattered every day we speak, they don't really have earnings to speak of, right? Uh, so how how do you, so basically talk to us a little more deeper, what do you mean by growth at reasonable price? Absolutely. And if you can uh, throw some names from history without, you know, talking of anything sensitive, that'd be nice to just to give context, make it a little more real. Sure. Uh, so, you know, growth at a reasonable price, again, as I said, uh, pr- by price, you mean valuation and valuation has no, no fixed arithmetical formula. So for some seg- segment or some st- stocks, you might use, uh, you know, price to multiple price to earnings multiple. Uh, that's typically in a normal growth uh, stock. But as you say, there are so many of these new companies where the, there is value. You can't say that a fintech company with uh, uh, 50 million subscribers doesn't have any value, right? The question is, how do you put a value to that? All the value is in the intangibles. That is one. And all the value is in the value of the cash flows that the business will be able to generate in the future. So very crudely speaking, you know, if I were to compare this with a greenfield project, you know, earlier used to have companies, let's say you are a company with uh, uh, no business, no current business, you do an IPO, you raise equity money and you buy land and plant and machinery and you set up a steel plant, right? That plant will, first of all, take a few years to set up, let's say three to four years. That's the time you have negative cash flow. You're putting in money, equity, as well as leverage uh, debt. Uh, And then after three, four years, uh, in the first year, you run the plant at 25% capacity. In the second year, you run the plant at 50% capacity. And third year, probably you go to 100%. Uh, so from the time that you start investing till the time you reach say 80-90% capacity, you'll be negative cash flows. But that does not mean the plant does not have any value till the fifth year. right? Uh, 
so the stock stock price will not trade at zero, right? The stock price will trade at some because stock price is looking at 100% capacity utilization and the global steel cycle, local steel cycle after five, seven years. That's the way to value some of these new age businesses also that they are burning cash, but they are burning cash uh, to generate intangible assets, which is more subscribers. And the hope is that this subscriber base will be sticky. And once you have a sticky subscriber base, you can sell, cross sell, mine that base and then generate future cash flows. So very crudely speaking, it's a capital intensive project with future cash flows, which need to be valued. Uh, so point is that you know steel prices, but you don't know what the value of a subscriber is, right? And whether it's whether he's sticky. That's well, the and, developing. Exactly, exactly. So that's when you do that's when you do kind of you know benchmarking, global comparisons, historical. Uh, the, most of these fintech company models are not unique in a sense. There's somebody out there in the US or Europe who's done that. In China also, there are lots of comparable models. So you kind of try to derive some kind of pattern out there and use met matrices which are not the normal, you know, EPS kind of matrices to arrive at a value. So far, in the IPOs, we've hardly put in any money in many of these IPOs. But, uh, you know, uh, as you know, a lot of these companies have fallen a lot, uh, 50, 60, 70%. And uh, there is there is expectation that most of these IPOs, which happened a year, year and a half ago, uh, have most of the lock-ins expiring in the next couple of months. So you might see some good supply. So there might be some volatility around there. But when a stock is down 60, 70, 80%, if you assume, if you genuinely believe that some of these businesses will survive, then in the long term, they are likely to scale up also. Yeah. Which means that some of these might actually, you know, offer some value. Uh, I guess. And this is the problem in valuation, not only in India, but globally. Because earlier, industry and companies used to be physical. Now, most of the businesses are not physical. All the value of Amazon of, of a Google or a Microsoft is, is not in physical assets anymore. 90%, 95% of the value is coming from non-physical assets, intangibles. But the brand that Apple, the premium that Apple commands is because of its brand and the network and the you know ecosystem that Apple has made around its Apple store and the apps and the and the revenue sharing that it does with the content, etc. So how to value that per subscriber is something that we'll have to get used to it because more and more uh, value will be created by intangibles. So you can't say as an investor, as a fund manager, I'm not comfortable valuing these companies. You have to have some kind of a framework. Well, after all, Warren Buffett also bought Apple, right? Exactly. He was always into the hard economy. Never, and he always said, I don't understand tech. I don't understand this. But one fine day, he's buying Apple and he buys a ton of it. I think he's the single largest shareholder in Apple now, right? Exactly. Something like that, yeah. So, uh, so, so you are saying that in the Indian context where you can see a long runway of growth, it makes sense to be a growth investor, but you want to be buying growth at reasonable price. And when you're, when you're talking of reasonable price, you're saying, look at things like PE, for example, where there are earnings and visibility, where there's no visibility, like let's say tech companies, then you have to figure out stickiness, et cetera, et cetera, and, and, try, and uh, uh, try and assess whether they make sense. Or price now, to be, for example, in the case of uh, financial companies, uh, price yeah. to be adjusted for our ROE and growth. Like the fintech, I guess fintech companies, very quickly you can assess. Is that what you mean? Even uh, banks, uh, we use uh, price to book multiples. Uh, uh, if the Because uh, higher the ROE, higher the price to book, that kind of uh, equation we have. Of course, adjusted for growth and consistency. Yeah. Uh, so different, uh, different, you know, courses for different horses. Yeah. And so... Uh, a lot of people would swear by value investing, which is buy deeply discounted stocks 
and just buy and hold them forever. The Warren Buffett style, right? And I guess most of India has grown up. We were in that generation which has been primed by Buffett for all this. So when you're doing uh, growth, uh, talk to us a little bit about the process of ensuring that you remain on track. And are the holding periods any different? Do you want? Do you need to be more actively involved uh, to figure out that everything is on the right track when you're doing growth investing? Actually, you know, I think Warren Buffett is also misunderstood. People kind of pick and choose which part of uh, part of his career, the first one on the second, <laughs> which part of the career, which part of Graham and Dodd, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I think it's all over the place. Uh, hmm. So, but I, I I look at growth because I like to see visible earnings triggers or earnings uh, you know drivers sort of not only drivers but triggers uh, so for example if a if a bank is growing at 25% for the last four quarters and there is nothing that has changed and if you assume that it's going to grow at 20 25% for the next uh, five years then you know you value it appropriately yeah. uh, but if you think it's a more cyclical business model then you value it uh, in, a, in a different way uh, so you know to that extent uh, you really need to uh, pick and choose uh, different frameworks for different uh, sectors for different companies. I think that's that's more important. Uh, so what I'm hearing is, in, in my case, uh, yeah. uh, I want to know that a company is going to deliver X amount of profit growth in the next one to three years. So typically, two to three years is what we project uh, overtly, and then there are of course long term assumptions uh, based on the uh, based on our, on our, our based on our own judgment. Uh, but more importantly, what I typically like to do is outline at the time of investment, uh, pretty much, you know, uh, mark out which are the milestones we are looking at. So, for example, as I said, in, in the case of this bank, which is growing consistently, I don't need to have any, any event which I need to track. I just need to track the quarterly results to see whether broadly things are on track. But suppose there's a, let's say, a, a chemical company, uh, which is in a growth phase. Uh, then uh, it's making good money today uh, with 50% uh, capacity utilization. Maybe next year it's going to 80% capacity utilization based on the order book. But then it's going for capex, and he's going to use this current cash flows to fund his capex. So then I like to see what what is the delivery date of that capex, what is the utilization of that capex likely to be, whether he'll have clients for that additional capacity when he comes through, and that event is something I would mark out in my calendar and then as we come closer to that event check back with the company whether to uh, to check whether things are on track so i need a tracking of triggers and milestones for growth also wow that's that's what we kind of typically try to do uh, two to three years is the time frame we we try to map out beyond that of course is very difficult to figure it out and then keep on revising the projections as 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 different milestones get uh, delivered yeah. So it's, it's I, I guess it's true of any style. You have growth to be very a, deeply let's, involved. Let's, let's put it: uh, growth at a reasonable price, uh, with a strong focus on quality, yeah. with visible growth drivers and/or growth triggers. Yeah. So now you are, of course, a money manager. So uh, the question I'm asking now is keeping the individual in mind, right? Typically, how many stocks should there be in a portfolio? Like when you are constructing your portfolio. Uh, uh, so I guess there's a fund angle and there's an individual angle. Uh, how many stocks would you have? And are there any other parameters you look at? You know, some are like very long-term focus, some are little interim or, uh, or you know, some people, let's put a bulk of it in the index stocks, safer, a little bit in the small caps longer. So talk to us about how you would go about constructing a healthy stock portfolio. So for my institutional portfolio, typically 40 to 50 is, is the number that I like to keep. 
uh, there's a bit of a tail always because there are some stocks entering and some stocks. 40 going. to 50 stocks. 40 to 50 uh, stocks. As an individual, I would say you don't need to own more than 20, 20 stocks if you already own some mutual funds, etc. in any case, you know. That, yeah. that gives you adequate diversification. But again, as an individual, you need to be very sure as to what you're buying. And need to, you need to have an edge over others uh, when you're buying the stock. So if you, you know, if you are, for example, a person in the chemicals uh, industry and you come to know uh, of a supplier or a, you know, or, a, or a chemical company who you actually do business with, then you have probably a better understanding of that business than me, right? Uh, yep. and then if you own a stock, then you might as well do it with more conviction as long as you are closer to the company. Yeah. So uh, related to this point on portfolio construction, I think one of the things that people underestimate is the importance of allocation of how much money you put into each stock. Uh, very often what happens is that uh, you've got, a, you've got these, let's say you've got these 20 stocks. Uh, some of them are going to be underperformers. So either you are equal weighted or as luck would have it or bad luck would have it, you have a lot more money in the, uh, the stocks which are not done well, which probably are the mainstream darlings and after a, a while they peter out. Uh, how do you go about allocating money to stocks? Is the conviction, uh, you? of course, I'm sure you don't do equal weights, right? Uh, what goes into that decision that in this stock, maybe I need to take double the normal weight that I would take or in this stock, I need to take less weight because it may be more risky. As an institution or as, a, as an individual? Talk to me about both. Okay. So let me start with the institutional part first. Uh, typically, long-only institutions like us, whether it's insurance companies or mutual funds, uh, they do have a benchmark to uh, beat. Right. Mm -hmm. It's a BSE 200 or the Nifty or, or the mid-cap benchmark, but there is a benchmark. So uh, most of the bets, uh, you know, take into account whether a stock is there in the benchmark or not. And of course, uh, uh, how much is the weight in the benchmark? Uh, so some of, sometimes I see, oh, this fund has 10% in reliance. Uh, that's a lot of weight, but that's not the case, right? Because the benchmark weight of reliance itself would be uh, more than 10%. So the fund manager is actually not saying that he's bullish on reliance. He's just saying probably he's neutral on reliance because it's such a large stock. Uh, so to that extent, uh, the style is be being benchmark aware and the bet sizing depends on the conviction. Uh, mm -hmm. So if a, if a stock is 9% in the benchmark uh, and I own 6% in my portfolio, it's not a positive. It's not a positive statement. Yep. It's a negative statement, right? Because I'm underweight three percent, and to put things in perspective, having a three percent underweight is a is a big bet, because if you're saying that a typical stock would outperform or underperform the benchmark by say ten to fifteen percent, fifteen percent under outperformance out of a stock in which I'm underweight uh, in a year would mean I leave, I lose almost half a percent versus the benchmark. Wow. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, and typically I've seen that fund managers globally and in India are expected in a good year to deliver say 200 to 400, uh, 2 to 4 percent more than the benchmark over the long term. Right? That's that's the expectation. Yeah. yeah, more is more is better, but then you have to take commensurately larger risks also. So I've seen over the long term, if if a fund manager is doing two to five percent uh, more than the benchmark, he's a good guy. He's a good fund manager. Right? Uh, so. Losing 50 basis points on one bet is actually losing 10% of your target outperformance in a year. That, put, that puts things in perspective, right? Uh, 
ஒருவேட் So owning 6% uh, in one stock could be a 3% underweight and owning 3% in a stock can be a 3% overweight. So that's, that's the way we look at things. Okay. Well, and uh, talking about individuals, how, uh, what do you think of uh, individuals in terms of weightages in construction? Yeah. So in individuals, I think the first thing that you need to worry about is uh, loss of capital. Right? Safety first. Individuals, you don't care what the Nifty is doing, right? Uh, you want to make absolute money the, in individual the targets are typically more absolute and there the first thing uh, to think about is not to lose money which means that if you are if you own stocks in in a sector which is either overhyped too expensive or leveraged sectors like the infra real estate sectors that we saw in 2007 89 there is a serious risk uh, of losing all your capital the first thing to do as an individual is to avoid loss of capital right and then i think uh, do or invest in stocks where you where you have an edge or you know something about and of course or you invest in the large stocks which uh, you know the uh, yeah. which which the are blue chips yeah. blue chips and just write them over a long period of time yeah time, but then you might as well put money in a mutual fund it's more more tax efficient in any case yeah 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 that makes sense so uh Okay, I, I I hear you. I think one thing we all will appreciate is how complicated the life of a fund manager is <laughs> when allocating money. It may look simple from the outside, but uh, it's it's a lot more complicated. Uh, talk to us about your rules for selling a stock. Sure. Uh, in fact, that's something that I'm very you know uh, uh, proud about uh, in the sense that typically some of my best decisions have been sell decisions rather than buy. Okay, very interesting. and i think that that comes from a bit of a mindset where uh, where i try to consciously avoid getting attached uh, to stocks or companies or sectors or or even promoters you know some of the promoters because as a fund manager as an analyst you get to meet so many uh, promoters uh, and most of them are smart people obviously they are smart because they are successful and they are successful because they are smart right okay. uh, and most of them are good communicators very impressive so to say and most of them have substance but that substance you know boils down to the fact that a a good company and a good management does not make a good stock all the time so ultimately if you if you if if a if a company is good but if it's trading at horribly expensive valuations does not make it a good stock so yeah. trying to detach the company and the personality of the promoter and the management from the stock price is something that i consciously uh, try to do uh and to that extent i also make sure that you know uh, i don't get too involved with uh, with any management or or any company uh, so that it, it becomes a bit difficult awkward sometimes if you are too close to a person so to say so it's yeah. keep the distance uh try to be objective uh and uh, what i typically do is we don't uh, sell in one shot because there's always a range right what is expensive at uh, 25 pe is also expensive at 35 is also expensive at 45 so uh, just because the market starting at say 15 pe and the stock is trading at uh, 25 pe makes it expensive yes but that's not the only reason to sell it's not the arithmetical formula because 
uh, a i might be underestimating the growth so we are also revising our estimates all the time b i might be underestimating the uh, the fancy that the market has towards the stock sometimes there's a problem of being too early also you yep. know so to that extent we we internally we give graded ratings to stocks from a strong buy to a strong sell and try to kind of align the ratings with the uh, with the bets so if uh, if if in our view a stock has 50% upside uh, we would give it a certain amount of overweight uh, compared to a stock which we believe has 15% upside then we'll give it a lesser overweight similarly for the underweights so we try to kind of grade it and as i said we started off with a say 3% overweight position in the stock and then it's as it starts re- getting relatively more expensive we try to uh, pair down pair down yeah, yeah. rather than uh, rather than you know all in one shot uh, and again sometimes people ask you know what is your absolute level to sell i said there is no absolute level to sell because we are all in the relative game especially us long only fund managers we are in the relative game so when a stock has gone from a pe of 15 to pe of 30 it's also probably the fact that the market pe has gone from 12 to 25 right so the, has the stock become expensive in relative in absolute terms yes but has the stock become expensive related to the market probably no because the market itself has gone up that much so those are the nuanced kind of decisions that we have to make and that's why we try to do things in a staggered fashion rather than all in one shot so you you're saying uh, in your sell decisions you you try and keep the emotion out you're just focused on the substance and nothing else and uh, you're selling staggered which is a great hedge right we are basically saying let's not treat the market as dumb maybe the market knows something we don't know and then you can exit gradually over time as again just selling a flash sell order exactly uh, and i think that makes sense right uh, yeah. uh, for an individual it may be a little more uh, mental gymnastics you know uh, to to not sell all at one go and also a lot of the paperwork and uh, you know putting in orders regularly one one big advantage that institutions have especially insurance and mutual funds is that we don't have to worry about capital gains yeah you know an individual when he sells he has to worry about whether it's a long term gain or a short term gain or a speculative gain that kind of thing we don't have to worry about that so we can actually just take a call based on the price yeah so that's uh, the late mr jetley introduced us back to long term capital gains tax otherwise life was much better for most <laughs> exactly exactly for a long time there was no tax right long term capital gains exactly mr jetley introduced that whatever 10% or whatever uh If I, you know, I don't want to put you on a spot, but any examples you can share where you could uh, exit ahead of time, selling way of process of selling a stock worked. Uh, so as I said, typically we tend to do things in a, a staggered fashion. Yep. Uh, that's that's the way uh, it works. Uh, so that a size also matters. We don't want to disturb the price uh, immediately, uh, but we do take strong calls when there is an adverse development. uh you know so if there is a some issue which has cropped up etc then we took uh, very strong uh, strong calls uh, uh, and you get out in one shot uh, so to say similarly from buying also we try to buy it in a staggered fashion but if there's a material development which we do believe that can impact uh, the stock price more more rapidly than we thought then we we try to buy more aggressively also so it case to case but by default we try to do it in a staggered fashion sure, sure. so you know uh, So, uh, some of the cells that have worked in the past uh, as i said 
was uh, one of the biggest sales that we did was getting out of uh, infra and real estate uh, in in uh, between between jan to march uh, of 2008 oh, that was really the peak i think if i remember well yeah let me get it, uh, between i would say october to uh, march 2008 okay uh, so uh, october 2007 is uh, is around the time when I thought things were getting a bit wonky, especially uh, you had enough indications from the US markets about CDS is, uh, you know, facing stress and things here were going uh, wonky. So by, by from July onwards, I was getting nervous. And by October, I was getting really nervous about the way things are. So we actually did not participate in a lot of the upside, the last blowout upside. So for a few months, we did underperform. But uh, in January, we actually doubled down and sold more. Uh, so we we kind of took the underperformance from uh, J- July 2008 to almost uh, January 2009, uh, but then it all got covered up within a f- period of a few months. And yeah, yeah. Was one of my best years. Uh, yeah, so that's, a be- that's a great call to have made, right? It's one for the books. If if you're writing a book, is yet or have you? Re- <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So in fact, we were we were quite uh, quite uh, quite well timed. Uh, there was a bit of murmur from the salespeople. You know, I was in a mutual fund at that time. Uh, you know, last few months under performance, etc. But we stuck to it, and uh, that turned out right. Uh, so some of sometimes you have to consciously be aware that you are going to face some pain for the next uh, few quarters or few months. But uh, it's all for the good, long term good. Yep. Yep. Uh, moving to asset allocation, I'm talking individual now. Uh, you know, one of the beliefs we have is that in the long term, uh, the role asset allocation plays in your wealth generation is far more than what one assumes. You know, a lot of people think that just picking the right stock is the ultimate solution to building wealth. But it's also about allocation, how much stocks you buy, how much gold you own, how much property you own, etc. Tell us about your thoughts on asset allocation. And also, if you can share, how do you go about uh, your asset allocation process? Sure. Uh, so I think you nailed it. Uh, asset allocation is is the key variable for long-term wealth creation. Uh, picking stocks is important, but you really need to be lucky. So if you want, don't want to bet on luck, then the other option is asset allocation. You know? That's perfect, yeah. So unless, I mean, we are all bright people, right? And uh, if uh, if somebody told me in 1994, when I thought finance was the place to go, uh, but some of the other colleagues uh, 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 who did not get good placements actually then joined software companies, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> and, the rest, and the rest is history, right? The rest is history, yeah. <laughs> so some of the batchmates, for example, in 1994, 95, in fact, 1994 was a decent year. But 95, 96, 97 were bad years for recruitment, campus recruitment especially. Mm-hmm. So at that time, all the finance jobs had dried up because of the Asian crisis, etc. And a lot of people were forced to join software companies. <laughs> <laughs> and the value of those options <laughs> uh, that they got by default uh, is, is far more wealth uh, than I've created. At least I, I know for sure. Yeah. So <laughs> you need to be lucky. Uh, but as I said, you know, if you if you don't want to bet on luck, uh, then well, uh, you know, long term asset allocation is the only way. And in a country like India, as I said, uh, with nominal GDP growth of uh, double digits, it makes sense to be in equities for the long term. The younger you are, the more equities you should own. 
Uh, if you can't manage your portfolio on your own, which a lot of us, most of you won't be because again, you have a full-time other job, not necessarily financial services, then go for, you know, the the, the mutual funds or those kind of uh, calls rather than trying to day trade. Sure. So uh, I'm, I'm sort of pressing on that question, same question. So uh, when you are looking at your own asset allocation, how do you think about other assets like property and gold and silver? Do you allocate to those? Do you not? And what are your thoughts on that? Uh, so as of now, uh, I think uh, for for an HNI, for example, uh, commercial real estate makes a lot of sense. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. So depending on the ticket size, I think uh, in residential the yields are not that great, uh, but commercial real estates in India, even good quality estates, are yielding uh, a good amount. So I think there, there can be a core element of uh, commercial real estate in in a HNI's portfolio. Uh, mm-hmm. Gold, I used to be a fan, but the way it has performed uh, in the last uh, two, three years, I'm not too sure anymore. Uh, it's shaken many people's confidence. Yes. <laughs> yeah, last two, three years. It's yeah. amazing. One would have thought that this was gold's moment, right? Absolutely. Just completely disappointed. Yeah. My my guess is that a lot of money which could have potentially gone to gold this time around went to uh, the crypto. Uh, because that did very well, but of course now they are down. So hopefully gold will be more stable going forward. But that's been a disappointment. I would have logically thought that with this kind of inflation and this kind of pump priming uh, and money printing, gold should have done much better. Uh, but commercial real estate in India, I think, makes sense. Uh, globally, I think real estate is bursting, uh, but not so not so in India uh, because yields are still uh, decent and there is good supply demand balance uh, there is no oversupply in the commercial part so that's one thing that one can definitely uh, look at uh, aifs uh, especially uh, pevc kind of uh, investments when you say aif you are referring to alternate uh, investment, investment funds, funds investment funds is not the listed equities i listed you might as well go to mutual funds or insurance ulips uh, but asset classes like uh, venture capital or private equity also can have some space not not very large, but some space in your portfolio just for the sake of diversification and, and to get exposure to some of the newer emerging trends, so to say. Yeah. Uh, in fact, as in insurance companies, we also do invest in some AIFs. Uh, and that's given us good insight. Of course, we're happy with the returns, but it's also given us good insights into some of the emerging portfolio companies and emerging sectors, which typically are not available in the listed space. That's interesting. Yeah. The newer technologies that are coming up or the newer businesses, business ideas that are coming up. Yes. Uh, so as uh, as part of your allocation, in fact, uh, sorry, I missed asking you, what about global stocks? Do you do you think uh, about sorry, global stocks? That one, one, a couple of asset classes which we missed out, uh, again, relatively new, is REITs. REITs, yeah, of course. Yeah. And REITs. Uh, those are also coming up in the last uh, two, three years. And on a case-to-case basis, uh, they also make a lot of sense uh, because there, will, there are always instances of mispricing. So REITs are, are yielding asset typically, but then the well, share price of the REIT go, keeps on going up and down. Uh, so at, at one point in time, REITs were giving you a yield of almost 7-8% uh, on a, on a, with a potential for capital appreciation also over, over the longer period of time. So they also make sense in a diversification world. Yeah. Uh, global equities, anything? Uh, global equities, you know, if you look at the past 10 years, NASDAQ has been king. Uh, but if you look at the year, 10 years before that, Indian markets were outperforming everything else. So there is always these phases. So if you are in India and your assets and liabilities are in India, 
then typically you want to have a larger much larger chunk in india itself because that's where your expenses are going to come from and as i said rupee to rupee nominal gdp growth in india is much higher uh, nasdaq has of course uh, done very well in the last uh, uh, few years 10 years of course last one year has not been that great so little bit of diversification is fine but again with india you know what you are buying right you know you know the ground whereas in the global markets uh, you all obviously are not that much in touch the more unknowns more the more yeah. but if i if i in general look at global markets i would still go for the specialized uh, uh, kind of investing like tech investing say the nasdaq makes more sense because that's 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 global in nature right it's not dependent only on the american economy uh, so uh, i would I, i'm still a fan of fan of technology of course at a price Uh, so if the nasdaq uh, corrects uh, too much which i think will happen in the next uh, few quarters then again it it would be a good time to look at it but as far as the growth at reasonable price for you so your domain as i said nasdaq and the tech companies i would buy for the innovation for the uh, cutting edge stuff that they do globally not for the american economy if i were to bet on a economy i would still bet on india okay well uh in terms of cash uh, how many months of expenses of cash do you keep aside for meeting emergencies and just taking paying bills etc uh i don't know i've never thought about it like that probably probably because uh because of my socio economic level i really don't think about that in that those terms but you keep aside okay yeah that's fine that's fine uh okay uh i you know I, before the podcast i asked you so one of the big things is that you know you're building all these assets you know you're thinking about uh, you know accumulating a certain amount of wealth to take care of your needs and your kids needs etc but at some time you're also thinking i have to hand this over to the next generation to manage right so uh talk to us about how are you teaching your children and how are you exposing them to money and investing and planning and, and tell us maybe share a few incidents <laughs> of how it went <laughs> yeah i think uh, as far as kids are concerned i have to uh, and the best way to teach them is to let them absorb it rather than uh, you know telling them this is it show show rather than tell no yeah yeah so i mean i'm sure they absorbed a lot because i think the the typical image that they have grown up with is me walking into uh, walking at 7:00 uh, o'clock uh, coming back home with a phone in my hand and continuing the conversation <laughs> till 8 o'clock and then going for dinner so i'm sure they've heard a lot of conversations on stocks and companies and global economy and what not so they've absorbed a lot uh, so my son for example is in the us and uh, uh, he's earning a, his his own salary now uh, doing a job there and uh, he's is on his own now started investing in a few stocks by himself uh, dabbled in bitcoin i don't know how that's going but uh, <laughs> you said dabbling bitcoin dabbled in bitcoin also I, i don't know how that's going i didn't ask like it yeah yeah <laughs> but uh, but yeah he's he's also using his own uh, experience and trying to identify trends and picking what, for what with whatever little money that he has uh, putting money into stocks so i think he's is getting there my daughter is studying economics uh, she's in college so she doesn't have spare money as of now but she's decided to do economics uh, i guess that that'll somehow that'll, lead yeah. her to the markets at some point in time i guess yeah Okay. Uh So uh, uh here's a question I ask all my guests uh so uh you know we've been through the pandemic there was a probably a one and a half year period you didn't go out didn't go on fancy holidays fancy restaurants 
So your wife comes to you and says, "Hey, Mir, I saved one crore rupees in this last one and a half years, and is lying in my cupboard. Now, what do I do with this?" So, what would be your advice to her? Well, she's already using it. We we already started using it a lot. We've done a, a quite a few trips already since Je- July of oh, this year. Okay, <laughs> so <laughs> that excess is getting depleted quite fast. Spending money is for spending only. No, no, nothing else to be done with it. Okay, that's nice. That's nice. Uh, yeah, that's uh, uh, if you're traveling on holidays at and these points in time, it costs a bunch. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's what everything I'm is very expensive. The flights, the hotels, everything. <laughs> oh. Well, let's see how that cycle goes, right? And and some of the trips were foreign trips, so the rupee also hurts. Rupee hurts, yeah. Uh, okay, your thoughts on giving away wealth? Have you thought about that, or how do you think about that? Too early, thinking about in the future. Uh, well, uh, a is I I hope to get to that level where I actually have to think about giving away. So as of now, I'm still building my corpus. Uh, especially, you know, with, with the kids ab- studying abroad, that's a lot of dollar expense per year. That's right. Okay. Kids into four years, so that's eight years of, uh, you know, dollar-based educational and living expenses that I have to provide for. Uh, yeah. And this is on post-tax rupee earnings. <laughs> Let's put it that way. <laughs> post-tax depreciated rupee earnings. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, we, we, uh, we've got some planning to do there. Uh, and, uh, of course, uh, in the tax bracket that uh, I am, uh, there is a lot of I'm giving back to society in terms of taxes, uh, income taxes, as well as consumption taxes, I'm sure. Uh, but yeah, at some point in time, uh, one needs to give back to society. Uh, and uh, for example, uh, my wife uh, very actively worked for a, a non-profit uh, for a pro bono uh, for five years. Uh, she was there, built up a you know, good, good uh, work, good kind of uh, uh, framework there. And uh, so not in monetary terms, but in terms of effort, it was a lot of five years of effort from her side. She She's a software engineer who gave up her career to ta- uh, to manage the kids uh, uh, quite a few years ago. But now that the kids are no longer here, uh, she's spending time, whatever she can on giving back to society. So not in cash, but in kind, definitely we are beginning to give back to society. And I would also like to do that at some point in time. Nice. Uh, was she one of the software engineers who graduated in 1995? <laughs> uh, yes, yes. <laughs> so all the options are still there or not there? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was some of them. Yeah. Some of them. Wonderful. Very nice. Okay. Now, uh, talking about India. Right. Uh, you mentioned multiple times about your, I guess, uh, uh, your preference of India. Over you mentioned about over the US, for example, or over, and the other thing you've spoken about is that India's got a growth trajectory, and this is where you want to be. So uh, you know we've been through this multiple times, right? We've had the reforms in 1992, uh, uh, the Manmohan Singh, uh, P.V. Narasimha reforms, and people thought India's moment had come, and it proved to be a false start. And we've had a couple of more false starts after that. So talk to us, what gives you conviction? that this time uh, it's for real and one can actually see a 10, 20 or how many years you see a growth trajectory and that's why it may be the right time to really look at India even more seriously than how people have looked at it in the past. See, I don't think we need to worry about whether it's this time or not because we've had since 1991, right? We've had different combinations of governments 
we had different kind of uh, geopolitical issues we, uh, like we had kargil and we had pokhran and you know uh, we had the mumbai attacks and uh, every time it used to be uh, a disaster kind of a situation where you know people thought but over a period of time you realized that in, and then we had the uh, galwan issue we had demon uh, so many things we have gone through uh, but the the good thing is that now we realize that india is so huge as a country that even if there is a disturbance in one part of the country it it, it does not impact the gdp growth right it, it makes headlines yes it makes negative headlines for sure but it does not change the way things are uh, things move on the demographics the inherent momentum that is there because of demographics is is there plus uh, uh, you know investors globally also have gone through the learning curve right till till 2 years ago china was supposed to be the the market right uh, but if in hindsight you realize that the chinese markets have given you zero returns for 30 years so as i said a good economy does not make a good stock market right like we said a good company may not mean a good stock stock yeah so mm-hmm. just because china has grown at 9 10% for the last 20 years does not mean that investors made money in china so there are it's not only about growth it's all, it's about transparency it's about you know uh, values it's about uh, uh, disclosures rights legal system and all said and done we are still a democracy and a relatively open democracy free market uh, uh, whatever controls we have are all overt controls we don't have any hidden controls right uh, so equity money can flow in and out of the country very easily debt we have controlled because uh, you know there are different reasons for that good reasons for that but equity can flow in and out of the country uh, if you look at the top 2 300 uh, companies in the in the in the uh, listed companies the governance and all is is pretty okay sebi has done a great job legal framework has proven itself again and again we have the nclt framework now so i think a lot of progress has happened on the policy side our exchanges uh, stock exchanges have withstood the worst of crisis worst of meltdowns without any breakdowns right uh, so um, our, our clearance settlement mechanisms the trade guarantees the the margining system that we have on the stock markets uh, rbi is doing a great job so i think in general there is transparency there are functioning institutions like the judiciary the exchanges the rbi the government and now it looks more and more like uh, you know india might get the tailwind also of china plus 1 europe plus 1 uh and it also coincides with the fact that in 2019 the government realized that we need to cut corporate taxes so for in 2000 september 2019 we announced the lower corporate tax rates for new investments uh, then quarter after quarter we are adding more and more industries to the pli scheme yep so they are pretty much now all the industries which are either import substitutes or export potential industries are being covered under pli right uh, second is government is dead serious about indigenizing its own procurement especially in defense yeah. and and willingly you know it's coming around so to that extent i think the fact that uh, india has now proven itself uh, china has kind of uh, been notched down a bit in, in investors mind uh, definitely people are going to give it a second thought when they are investing in china the way things have gone in the past few years and india has proven itself again and again that forget the economy the stock markets have written good good returns for uh, global investors yeah so i think the the pe experience in india the vc experience in india the portfolio investor experience in india has all been positive whereas it's is exactly the other way around in china china they have 
shutdown companies, arrested managements, companies disappear, managements disappear. Uh, they regulated the education companies, they regulated the tech companies one fine day, and all of them are down. It's eighty percent. Like uh, so, so there is no transparency. You don't know what you're doing out there. So I think so, India will get a tailwind of global flows after all this choppy episode is over. Uh, and you know that's that's what makes me so bullish on India. In fact, you know, one of our recent guests on the podcast said this: that India's moment has been brought forward five to ten years because of what's been happening in China. Absolutely. Uh, otherwise, we'd have taken a lot more time to get a rightful share in the global money flows and manufacturing and all that. But after what's happened in China, everything is like now. These are my words on steroids. You know, it's it's happening a lot faster. So I think one of the, so when I you know uh, if I was to think of it, it's like uh, the trigger for this phase of growth in India has been the devaluation of China in the minds of the global money managers and the global business people. They suddenly realize the risk of being involved. So now they're looking for new destinations. And the other part of it is that India has done a whole bunch of things in the last several years, which accumulatively sort of shining a much better light on us. So when someone's looking for money and here we are sitting with all these things starting to fall into place, I think uh, it just adds up and gives us probably a tailwind, like you mentioned, yeah, and, uh, and which the, could be fantastic. Yeah, and the government has basically woken up to the fact that we need to do this. And it's not only the center, but now you have, you know, you have debates like people in Maharashtra cribbing, oh, this project went yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's a it's a it's a it's a problem for Maharashtra, but it's a very healthy debate. Is good. Yeah. yeah, it's a very healthy debate. Yeah, the states should want uh, industry. They should debate. They should offer all that. And and you're right. Uh, in 2019, was it 2019 when Nirmala Sitharaman started having monthly meetings, press conferences to announce new benefits? Was it 2019? Right. The, the, the corporate tax rate. The cut came into September 19, yeah. 19, yeah. They were having those monthly meetings to try and boost uh, industry. So, yeah, it's uh, uh, it's adding up. So, uh, so you, what kind of a runway do you see? Yeah, like, do you think about it? Like, this could be a 10, 20. Like, in China, it was a 30-year thing, right? 90s, 10s, and 20s. Uh, for 30 years, China just grew like crazy. Do you think that India has that kind of potential and the kind of thinking to be able to pull this through? I think so, because, I mean, on a... On a per capita, everything we are so low that yeah. it's for us to mess it up, frankly. Yeah. Yeah, I like the way you put it, it's for us to mess it up. We have the like if you go by the basics, you need land, labor, capital to produce. We yeah. have enough resources, enough people, and now there's no dearth of money. We have enough resources, we have enough people, capital will not be a problem, right? And uh, uh, and we have a market, a domestic market which is ready. Which is and and, and, and now you've got all this. The tech stack, which helps you reach the market much more seamlessly and uh, allows you to service a little lot more cost efficient. Yeah, yeah, light years ahead in some of these things, you know. Yeah, wonderful. Okay, move, moving ahead. Uh, talk to us about what do you read and, uh, you know, how much time do you spend reading? I mean, I'm so lucky. Okay. I'm a yeah. profession where you get paid to read, right? <laughs> That's right. When you when you actually step back and see what we do as investors as analysts, it's basically reading stuff and talking to people and talking to good quality people. You know, you're you're typically talking either to your own analysts 
or uh, sell side analysts or investment bankers or corporates or policy makers so it's a very high level of you know uh, interaction that you are uh, able to do as a as an institutional investor and i'm completely grateful to my job that i'm in a situation like this uh, so reading is something that whether it's emails or social media or or, or books and magazines i would say it's a 24 hour process uh, in fact uh, you know sleep patterns sometimes tend to get disturbed because you're reading the glowing screen for too long and they say it's not good they say it's not good for sleep. you're a twitter you're a twitter buff i've seen your posts on twitter very yeah. interesting and you're always posting so and they're very intriguing so i can imagine how much you're reading and keeping track of to be able to post such great stuff yeah so i'm reading all the time uh, i must admit though that my over the over the past four five years the the long form reading has reduced and the short form reading has increased because of social media so that that change i can see the thing about social media is that it gives you so many various uh, perspectives in a short period of time so earlier you probably were following three or four global strategists uh, very closely uh, or and three, four or five local analysts uh, or strategists uh, uh, very closely but now you are like 20 good people to you know follow and you have 30 good people to follow for say politics and also there is a bit of a filtering that you need to do as i said the long form reading has gone down a bit uh, yeah. the short form reading has gone up but i think it's all for the good so uh, we are we are of course recording this show on the 8th of november it'll get published later but uh, are you in that uh, camp where you're willing to pay 8 dollars to elon musk or no i don't think so oh <laughs> But that's a question that had to be asked because that's the question everyone's being asked. So I thought I should not be left. I should ask you that question. Yeah. So but someone did a calculation the other day. Very well, you know, that uh, if you if you paid eight dollars, uh, knowing that everybody else will be able to get that verified tick by paying eight dollars, then does your verified tick hold any value? Well, yeah. You know. Yeah. So apparently, the someone was doing this calculation that the rate for India is going to be like one ninety nine rupees or something per month because okay. they're going to adjust it by uh, purchasing power. So probably, you know, Mr. Musk is going is in for a surprise at how many Indians get the tick. I guess might get tempted. Yes, might get tempted. Yes. Uh, any recommendations uh, that you would like to, or any any just generally, to, you know as we are coming close uh, to the end of the podcast, uh, your thoughts and suggestions to our listeners and viewers on what they can do to just become generally better wealth creators and, you know, uh, wealth generators. Uh, as you, the last topic that was read, read a lot. And you are, we are lucky to be in the age where we have so much information to read, you know, to check it out. Uh, find a few good people to follow on social media. Uh, I think that that's invaluable and uh, information is so widely available that you can have n number of websites where you get getting data on fundamentals on technicals on all sorts of things so, so i think even if it's 100 rupees put 100 rupees into a stock and, and start analyzing it because there's no better way to you know really get into it without investing you can read all the books that you want but uh, till you make money or lose money you will not know who you are as an investor and everybody's different and the earlier you start, the earlier you discover what works for you, what doesn't work for you, uh, the better. So even if even if you don't have thousands of rupees or lakhs of rupees, buy one share 
of uh, you know uh, anything that you analyze and then watch the share price over a period of time see what's working see what's not working just you know there's no better way to you know to learn this than jumping into the water and try to swim having a little skin in the game uh, just takes you on a different path of learning Absolutely. it's a little more involved a uh, paper trading is good but you don't really go through that emotion <laughs> which you have to keep in check uh, stick to the substance not the emotion right so uh, this is this is one area where you can fool anybody else but you can't fool yourself that's right you know the market are, the market price is the ultimate truth that is right you can tell the people all you want at the cocktail parties but at the end of the day you know what you've done exactly so uh, so on that note meher thank you very much for your time it's been a wonderful uh, conversation uh, i've really enjoyed the you know a uh, talk uh, i i loved the the way you spoke about selling i think we spoken about selling in most of our episodes but the way you explained it was very interesting and intriguing i love the part about staggering because it sort of uh, de-risks your selling process and so many other nuggets and i'm i'm sure our, our viewers and uh, readers will love it and we'll get all the feedback which of course i'll pass out to you so thank you very much for taking the time out to do this thank you thank you all pleasure to be here thanks for spending so much time thank you thank you for listening to the investor hour i'm very excited to hear what you have to say about this episode or the podcast in general be sure to write to me at info@equitymaster.com at that's i n f o @equitymaster.com thank you once again and see you at the next edition of the investor hour this was a mint production brought to you by hd smartcast hd smartcast